Um, please turn your Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter four as we continue to progress through Peter. As we journey through Peter, uh, this morning we are going to be reading verses 1, or studying and preaching on verses 1 through 6. If you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Out of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, we see, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. May God add a blessing to His Word. Amen. Please be seated. As we continue in our series, as I stated in 1 Peter, under the, under the theme of living <coughs> holy lives as we sojourn through this world, we are dealing with a major sub-theme, which is how do we deal with the suffering we face in this world? And how do we endure it so that we live a holy life in Christ? You know, as believers, um, it's no mystery, and we've talked about this before, we will suffer in this life. We will suffer against the draws and effects of the flesh, and we will suffer as a result of being children of God in a world that hates Jesus Christ. You heard me say this time and time again. And if I was to ask anybody in this church to raise their hand if you've ever experienced suffering, I would expect everybody's hand to go up. And why is that? I'm confident of that. Because we are all born into sin. We all deal with the daily effects of the flesh. And at times we also deal with the effects of a hostile world that comes against us because of Christ. So then there's the question. How do we endure this suffering? How do we endure it? Now there are many ways in which the Bible instructs us on how to endure suffering. But within this morning's text, as Peter provides, he admonishes us and encourages us in the suffering that we face to be armed with several things in order to effectively deal with the suffering that we will face. Or maybe we are facing. So let's dive right in to verse 4-1 and begin to explore and understand what Peter admonishes us to do. In verse 4 in chapter 4, verse 1, we see, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Right out of the gate, Peter instructs us to be what? Armed. 
Now, it's interesting what that word arm means in the Greek. It means to arm yourself with weapons. Now, why would you do that? Because you're going to go to battle. You're going to go to warfare. Why else would you need weapons? Remember what Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We also know that we don't deal with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers that come against us in the church. Brothers and sisters, whether we want to realize it or not, whether we want to accept it or not, we are in a war. We're in a war. You know, people in Ukraine never thought that would ever happen. But now they're in a war. And it's affect their daily lives. We need to come with the same understanding that we're in war every single day, whether it be against the flesh or against the world in which we live. It's a battle. It's a campaign, a lifelong campaign against the desires of the flesh. A policy of appeasement will not meet, will meet with certain defeat. Sin is to get no quarter in your life. No safe haven. There's to be no compromise with it. There's no treaty that you could ever sign with it that will bring peace. And if you're unwilling to go to battle against the desires of the flesh, you will be conquered by them. And you'll always be subject to them because you will be enslaved to them. Now, throughout the six scripture or the six texts, scriptures that Peter gives us, he reveals that we are to be armed first with the mind of Christ. The first thing that we need to be armed with is the mind of Christ. Now, what does it mean to be armed with the mind of Christ? It means to have the same attitude, the same approach, and the same resolve that Jesus had towards his suffering towards his suffering. Brothers and sisters, we know what God's word says about our minds and our actions in relationship to our minds. Here's a couple of scriptures. Romans 5 Romans chapter 8 verses 5 through 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. In, in, in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but renew your mind. We've spoken about that several times. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Where do you focus? Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And this is just a sampling. If you ever did a word study of the mind or think as in God's word, you will see numerous verses that address it. And I would encourage you to do that study. But why does God's word have so much to say about the mind? Why is it so much in there, right? We have the Holy Spirit, the power of God within us to live this holy life, right? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But why do they always talk about the mind? Because God knows how we think. God knows that what we think leads to 
to how we act. And so if we think incorrectly, we're going to live incorrectly. That's why we're supposed to renew our mind with the Word of God to replace those thoughts that have been so ingrained in our lives by experiences and teachings and upbringings to get them to be in alignment with the Word of God so that we live them out. So how do we do this? Well, Scripture tells us. I will meditate on your precepts and I will fix my eyes on your ways. That's how we do it. That's how we keep our mind in Christ. This is exactly how Christ did it. Every time Christ faced suffering, he either quoted or pointed to the Word of God. A living word, an active word. A word that's sharper than two-edged sword. Able to pierce right down to the center of who we are. God's word needs to be written on our heart. And the only way it happens is by way of reading and meditating on it. Now, what does that meditating mean? That means to read God's word and get into a quiet place and just think about God's word and allow the Holy Spirit to teach you what that word is saying to you. So when we see Peter admonish us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking or mind, are we or mind, we are to approach suffering in the same manner Christ did. And how did he do it? With patience. With his mind focused on the will of the Father. Not on himself. Continuing in verse 1 and 2, we read, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now we see the second thing we are to be armed with, as Peter reveals. And that is that we are to be armed with suffering. Now that seems counterintuitive, right? How do you arm yourself with suffering? It doesn't really compute within our sense of reasoning, right? But what it's really saying is we are to embrace the suffering we endure. Embrace it. And there's a very specific reason why we are to embrace it, because our natural inclination is to run from it. Within these texts is a treasured principle that we need to not only understand, but embrace as it relates to suffering. And that is that when we suffer in the flesh, we cease to sin. When we've suffered in the flesh, we cease from sin. Now, what is Peter saying here? Right? The first thing we need to understand in order to understand what Peter is saying is he's saying it in the past tense. Have suffered. Have suffered. Went through. Have endured. And what he's saying is when we suffered and we endure, we break free from the control of sin as a dominating force in our life. That doesn't mean 
that there is no longer sin tempting us or moving us, or even that we sin ourselves. But what it says is, when we have suffered, we went through, we endured. When we get to the other side of resisting it, approaching it in the same manner that Christ did, something very special happens. It breaks the chains that enslaves us. It breaks the bonds that entrap us. Wayne Gruden said this, Whoever has suffered for doing right has still gone on obeying in God in spite of the suffering it involved, has made a clear break from sin. That doesn't mean you're sinless. It means it doesn't have the dominating control and enslavement that it had once before. So what Wayne Grudem is saying, and more importantly what Peter is saying, and more importantly what God is saying to us, is although the tug of sin will be forever with us, it just is. Suffering provides a way of breaking loose. It's dominating control of us that we're not under its enslavement. Yes, sin has been dealt with at the cross, and we are presented faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. And the work that Christ did on the cross is complete. But we are called to live holy lives. And as we progress in this sanctifying work of becoming Christ-like, we need to break free from the control of sin in our life and its power over us. And the only way that can happen is to be perfected by suffering. And it doesn't connect in our reasoning, but it does in the Word of God. There's no other way. Think about it. If we're under the control of sin, whether it be pride, lust, envy, control, or the like, when we resist it, there is going to be a fight between your flesh and your spirit. It's going to happen. Because the old nature wants what the old nature wants. And like I said in earlier scripture, there's going to be a battle that's going to wage. I remember one night I was being tempted in a way that was overwhelming. I had not experienced anything up to that point. I allowed my emotions to get the best of me. And I did some things I wasn't proud of, said some things I wasn't proud of, felt some things that I wasn't proud of. And when I went to bed that night, I was so convicted by the Holy Spirit, I picked up my Bible and I kept reading and praying, reading and praying, reading and praying, reading and praying. And brothers and sisters, there was a spiritual battle I have never faced in my life that night. There was a war going on. I had opened the door of opportunity for the enemy and they walked right through it. And that whole night was a battle waging with God's word to gain back the ground that I gave up. I finally fell asleep under the stress of it all. And when I woke up that next morning, I felt a newness in my walk, a freshness in my walk. Although the temptation that caused me to sin was still there in certain situations, the allure and the necessity of me giving yield to it no longer was present because there was victory over it. I was no longer enslaved by it. That night, wrought in prayer and reading God's word, 
broke free the chains that ensnared me to its temptations. And now when I'm faced with that same temptation, I go back to that time. And I say, no, Lord, we had victory here. And that's what suffering does. It takes us through this so that we can break free from that sin. In fact, after we're done with that suffering, we get a great encouragement. Later in 1 Peter, where it says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what happened the morning after that. That's what He did. You see, suffering is where the battle happens against sin. But it's also the portal in which we obtain freedom from its enslavement. Christ never seen suffering as a negative thing. You ever notice that? He never. He always embraced it. Because he knew it had to work. It knew that he had to go through suffering. He must suffer in order to pay the full price to redeem you and me. And so he embraced it. He didn't resist it. And so use suffering for its good and perfect work, arming yourselves with the same resolve and enduring the suffering, holding to the strength of the Holy Spirit and God's Word, which is our sword, which is the weapon we use to battle so that sin no longer has dominion over you and your life. The next thing Peter tells us to be armed with or to arm ourselves with, excuse me, is with the Father's will. I forgot to show you that picture. I thought that was a very powerful picture And when we're dealing with spiritual warfare. But moving forward, sorry, my timing was off on that one. <laughs> but we're to arm ourselves with the will of the Father. From the very beginning of our Lord's life, He was about doing one thing, doing the will of the Father. In Luke chapter 2, we see Jesus as a young boy being questioned by his parents as to where he was. They lost him, right? How do you lose the Son of God? Anyway, they lost him. Where did they find him? In his father's house. And what did he say to him? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? From a young age, his mindset was to do the will of the Father. There was never a time he was not about this. Even under great stress and eternal suffering against the flesh, Christ's resolve was to do the will of the Father. Tim spoke about his time in the desert for 40 days. Will of the Father. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the night of his most intense suffering against the flesh, where he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remember, he was sweating blood he was so stressed. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. All the way to the end, it was the will of the Father. That's what kept him focused. That's what kept him on the path to satisfying what God had called him to do.
It should be no different for us. If you recall during my Easter sermon, I spoke about how we, through the resurrection of Christ, receive a new life, a new purpose. One that is now identified in Christ fully. And it is to be lived for His will, not ours. His will. You see, when we're focused on the will of God, the lust of the flesh loses its power. When we're focused on the will of God, the lust of the eyes loses its allure. When we're focused on the will of God, the pride of life loses its throne on our hearts. And we no longer desire human passions. The problem is, is we're not always focused on the will of the Father, are we? Right? We get so easily distracted in a world that has so many things to look at, especially if you've got ADD. Right? Squirrel. And the world is really, really good at attracting you away. When I was doing, I'll show you how this all worked. When I was doing, when I was writing my sermon, I got a new computer and I haven't organized my web page. Not my web page, but when the web comes up, I haven't organized how it's associated. I got to get my wife to get on there. And I'm sitting there reading um, some commentary, and all of a sudden an ad pops up over here, right? And I look over. It was provocative. It wasn't pornographic because we have filters, but it was like, like women's attire that is like not a lot there. Bikinis and stuff like that. And I'm like, what? Click, close. <laughs> That's how easy it can come in through various media or whatever that we use. Now to the world, they'd be like, yeah, that's a nice bikini. I think I'm going to go down and buy that. For me, while I'm reading about the Word of God and suffering against the flesh, I'm like, really? <laughs> click. <laughs> I didn't click on it. I clicked <laughs> close. I clicked the X. Okay? Yeah, Mike was down here going, what did you click? Um, but when we're not following the will of God, self will assume the throne. And what influences self? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And those will never align with the will of the Father and will never lead to victory over the passions of the flesh. If you give in to them, you're giving quarter to sin. You're giving safe haven to sin. Remember what the Lord said. This is a hard word. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I don't want to be on the negative receiving end of that verse. I want to be on the side of the verse that says, well done, good and faithful servant. But do you know what that verse is telling you? There are some that would appear Doing, working, celebrated maybe, doing God's will or doing God's work, but they're not doing God's will. And even them, under this judgment, will say, whoa, 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 wait, Lord, didn't we do all these things for you? Right? Didn't we heal the sick? Didn't we minister your word? 
And the Lord will look at him and say, did you? Or is that all for you? You didn't do my will. You see, we can know the Bible inside and out. But if we can't discern how it's applied to our life, we're not doing the will of the Father. And so let us be armed with the will of the Father and remain focused on Him. Every morning we should wake up and say, Lord, Your will, not mine. Your will. Remind me of that, Lord, every time I want to step out on my own. Your will, not mine. Continuing on, verse 3 and 4. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you don't join in them in the same flood of debauchery. And so what do they do? They malign you. The sins mentioned here by Peter, and we simply just don't have time to go through each one of them, but I encourage you to do a word study on them because they all have a lot of things in common. We're all part of normal life during the time Peter wrote this letter. They were culturally acceptable. In fact, some of them were part of pagan worship, where they blatantly disregard for restraint, and many within the audience of Peter's letter practiced such sins or was dealing with being released from such sins. That's why Peter put it in there. These sins were so normalized that they were accepted without question. Like, what's the problem? Sadly, we're entering into the same environment in the world in which we live. Sin is becoming so normalized, so accepted, even celebrated. It's becoming more imperative that we stand firm in our faith and live for righteousness and be sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit or else we'll compromise. We'll give appeasement. You heard me talk about the moral break? Where we can weaken our consciousness towards sin, that we can push that break all the way to the floor and it won't stop? Because we so allowed sin of the world to be normalized to the point that we don't even see it for what it is. In essence, what we're talking about here is desensitization. It's an actual term within psychology. If you don't believe me, ask Adam. And desensitization is the process by which a response is repeatedly elicited in situations where the action tendency that arises out of the emotion proves to be irrelevant. In other words, the more we're exposed to something, the less alarmed we are by it. The more accepting we are of it. The more desensitizing we become to it. And since the world is becoming more immoral, more accepting of immoral behavior, the more we're surrounded by it all on all fronts. And so it's easy to become less alarmed and more accepting and more appeasing. We see it in the church, unfortunately, where major denominations have changed their position on immoral behavior and it wasn't because they found new scrolls in a cave somewhere or they come up with some new way of interpreting Scripture. No, what has changed? Social shifts in consciousness towards sin. That's what's changed. The world has become more accepting. So the church feels, well, in order to be relevant, we must also be more accepting. Wrong answer. And it's going to get even tougher, gang. 
to stand for what God's Word says. And be prepared for what comes when you do. And so we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit to continue to give us sensitivity to sin in every area of our life and guard us from the effects of desensitization of sin. That's why when we pray, Lord, please make me aware of the conviction of sin. Please keep me sensitive to sin. Convict me of sin and unrighteousness, Lord. Never let me ever lessen that in my life. You see, a transformed life in Christ is a strain and offensive event to the world. They don't get it. They don't understand it. When I was saved, I hung out with guys that liked to drink and play poker. And when I stopped doing those things, they were puzzled. We don't understand. I, yeah, 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 yeah. You're a man of God now. We got it. But why can't you come and drink and play poker? Because I'm a man of God. And the Lord has renewed my heart, renewed my mind. Those are things I'm not supposed to be occupying my time with. It doesn't mean I don't like you. In fact, I love you, man. They didn't like that. Cops, they don't like to be told they're loved. They're men, alpha. But I did. My heart changed towards them. My heart changed towards my life. And it was an abrupt change, and they'd seen it. And they were confused by it. Why? Because I didn't follow them in the same debauchery. And so they were puzzled. Why? Because it's spiritually discernible but it's one of the greatest witnesses you'll ever have. Because how did you become, how did you transform your life? It wasn't through self-improvement. It was through the Holy Spirit conviction and what Christ did on the cross. I lost a lot of friends, but I was able also to witness to some, and they came to Christ. Praise the Lord. You see, the Bible says we're all created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, no one is without excuse to see their own eyes, the movement of God in His creation and saints. No one's without an excuse. No one. And so everyone has a created connection with the Almighty Creator. And when they see the movement of God in the world or in others, it convicts them. They may not even understand it because, like I said, it's spiritually discerned. But it angers them. And you know why it angers them? Because down deep inside, they have a seared relationship. They have a distance from God, a deep wound that triggers their resentment and anger towards the things of God. Just think about you pre-Christ when someone shared Christ with you. What was your thoughts? Oh, that's interesting. Or was it, shut up? I don't want to listen to that. Who are you to talk to me? Where'd that come from? Because it comes from an unsettled relationship that is not whole. It's not reconciled. It's also because they're living in rebellion and in sin. You know, I've never met a person who has joy who is living in rebellion. Never. I've met happy people, right? Because happiness is an emotion. It can be influenced by the pleasure of sin, but not joy. They never had that deep-seated assurance of who they are in Christ. They're miserable people. And they hide behind the facade of happiness. But down deep inside, they're hurting. And they're in need of Jesus and reconciliation with the Father. 
So don't ever allow their rebuffing of you, their anger towards you, their resentment towards you, their maligning towards you to ever stop you from continuing to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to their life because they need it. Take the abuse. Take the words. Take the rejection. But keep praying for them. And keep praying that God would move in their heart because they need Jesus just like you did. And time is short. And the reason why they're surprised that you don't join in their sin is because everybody, if you look at people that are in sin, because they think everyone is like them. They don't think what they do is bad. Mike brought up something this morning in Sunday school class where he says, you know, people think they're good people overall. And then Mike says, well, compare it to what? Let's see if you're good in comparison to the Word of God. And like Mike said, whenever he did that, they had no answer. Because their definition of good is their own definition of good. Well, that's easy if you could do that. But when you compare it to truth, different story. Now that word malign means speaking evil of you. We see this in the early church. In the early church, they were accused of cannibalism because they celebrated the Lord's table. The body of Christ, the blood of Christ. They were accused of sexual immorality when they celebrated love feasts, love fests. And this all led to persecution. Not because they were doing wrong, but because they were reflecting Christ and they hated it. Because of their own sin and separation of God. And they seen it as a threat. A threat to their power, a threat to their type of religion that they were practicing, and the things that they enjoyed. Remember what Christ said, they will hate you because of me. So how do we endure this? Peter gives us the, another answer. And the fourth thing that we are to arm ourselves with. And that is the assurance of God's judgment. The assurance of God's judgment. Now, why is it important to understand that we need to be armed with the assurance of God's judgment? Because Peter is telling us throughout the sub-theme of suffering in holy, as we live these holy lives, when we face evil, we are to do what? Good. That's what it said earlier in chapter 3. We are not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Why? Because God's judgment relieves us from our own desire for our defense and our own desires to apply justice. It relieves us from our own desire for defense and our own sense of justice towards others. We were talking about that in Sunday school class. Thank God for God's mercy. His mercy has no limits. His grace has no limits. Ours do. Someone hurts you, hard to extend grace. Someone harms you, hard to extend mercy. Someone offends you deeply and hurts you deeply, it's hard to forgive. But rest assured, 
for those that come against you, for those that persecute you, those that cause you suffering, they are not without an excuse. They will be judged by God. And he is a perfect judge who judges with all mercy, all love. And so we need to release that to him. And when we do, we get peace. You ever wrestle with that? You ever wrestle with, Lord, why are they doing what they're doing? They need to be told. They need to be stopped. They need to be judged. Release them to the Lord and continue to focus on the will of the Father. And you'll have peace. God will judge those. He'll judge all. So take refuge in that. Take assurance in that. Verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached to the dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is the final thing that we need to arm ourselves with, and that is with the Holy Spirit. The assurance of the Holy Spirit. Now this verse can be confusing, but once you understand what Peter is saying, it makes sense in the context in which Peter is writing. Remember, he's talking about suffering and persecution. Remember, in Peter's days, coming to Christ could result in death. That's the cost of coming. And we see that with brothers and sisters in countries where it's actually against the law to go from one faith to another. In Islam countries with Islamic law, it is against the law to go from Islam to Christianity, and they justify their actions in that you can be killed for it. The U.S. government had to stop an individual who, was, who came to Christ during the Afghanistan war, who came to Christ, they were going to put him to death. And our, our government had to stop in and say, no, 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 no. So there are actual laws on the books. And so in Peter's day, it was the same way. You come to Christ, you can be put to death. And so what we hear here from Peter is an encouragement, actually, that those who have died, as the word Dead does not mean to trespass and sin, but an actual physical death. He's speaking of those who were martyred, who had died in Christ, under this persecution, under Nero. And they heard the gospel message. And even though they were judged in the flesh by men and put to death, they are no longer in our presence. They are alive in Christ. And so will they. And so will we. And we have the added blessing of being alive in Christ now. By way of Christ. Again, he was saying this for their encouragement. In fact, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Oh, I'm sorry for the small font. This is a very difficult passage to expound on. But I suppose the meaning is that the gospel was preached to those departed saints who had been called to die for Christ's sake, and that it was preached to them for the very reason, that while they were judged by wicked men and were then condemned to die, they still live a far more glorious life than they lived here, because they were thus enabled by the martyr death to consummate their consecration to God. Remember what Scripture says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. 
We have received the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to live this life. Teaches us the things of Jesus. Convicts us of sin and unrighteousness. Leads us, guides us, anoints us to do great and mighty things for Jesus. And to stay focused on the will of the Father. Remember Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 says, We are to walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Brothers and sisters, we will face suffering. Whether it's from this world or our flesh every day, we need to endure it so that the perfect work of Christ can be complete in us. It's a progressive thing. Peter, within this morning's text, reveals several things that we are to arm ourselves with in order to endure. We are to be armed ourselves with the mind of Christ and have the same attitude and resolve our Lord had in the face of suffering. We are to arm ourselves with suffering and allow it to break the chains and enslavement of sin. We are to arm ourselves with the will of God and stay focused on what He has called us to do. We are to arm ourselves with the assurance of His righteousness and per righteous and perfect judgment, knowing all will give an account. And finally, we are to arm ourselves with the assurance of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live this life in Christ. If we arm ourselves every day with these things that Peter speaks about, we will progress in Christ. We will be strengthened. We will break those binding chains of sin and we can be stayed and focused on the will of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that, uh, Father, in it, we are given such great encouragement, such great strength and direction and power to live this life that you called us to live. Father, I pray that this, your word, would resonate in our hearts so that we would meditate upon it this week. Because, Father, we will face suffering and we must endure it. Give us the strength. Father, give us your word so that, Father, suffering can have its perfect work. And so, Father, help us to be armed with the things that you've taught us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us.